Hello and welcome to your favorite comics YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg, and I'm very excited to do this interview today with Carl Stevens, an artist I have been following for years. He uh, burst onto the scene with a Zurich award-winning book called Guilty in the early 2000s. His books include Whatever, Lodger, Failure, The Winner, Floppy, uh, Penny a couple of years ago about his torty cat, one of my favorites, and one of David Sedaris's favorites. And he has a new book coming out in August, Mother Nature with Jamie Lee Curtis and Russell Goldman. He's also done comics for The New Yorker, as well as The Village Voice and Boston Phoenix. Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe, Carl. Let's start with Mother Nature, your, uh, your upcoming book. It'll be out in August. Tell us about how that came about. The way that the uh, project came about was that um, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, collects uh, New Yorker cartoons. And like every year for her anniversary, their like wedding anniversary, her and Christopher give each other um, original New Yorker cartoons. And they have like 35 of them. So in 2019, they uh, selected one of mine. And uh, it just, you know, turned out that she just wanted, you know, to be friends. And then, you know, she got like other like drawings for me. And then uh, in the summer of 2020, she sent me this uh, film script that she had written with uh, Russell Goldman called Mother Nature. And I read it and it's this really cool uh, ecological uh, horror uh, story, like, you know, in the vein of like Sonic Green, you know, those like seventies stories. And like Jamie had like had the idea since she was 19 and you know, I read it and it was just filled with all these great like action, like set pieces. And, um, you know, the like message was something that I've been, had been thinking about for like a long time, you know, doing something like about, uh, climate change and, you know, something with that, you know, took kind of like a cold eyed approach to it. So, you know, I, I wrote Jamie back and said, you know, I think this would make an incredible graphic novel. And she's like, that's a fucking great idea. So she talked to Blumhouse because like the script had been bought by by them and um, was like in production. And then, you know, Blumhouse thought it would be great to do it as a graphic novel first too. So then they found Titan and then it was about uh, nine months of agents fighting back and forth. And then like I finally uh, got working on got uh, like working on it but you know it like ended up um you know i mean I, I i was you know they completely like just like left me alone so i was able to you know like design all the characters and you know just draw it all myself um i i actually like hand lettered it even though later uh they had ma like made a font of my lettering and you know used that for i guess the translations um <laughs> So, you know, I mean, I was, it was, it's, it's basically like, you know, like my adaptation of their script and, you know, like both Jamie and Russell were very hands off, you know, as far as like what the visuals look like. So. Is, you, you mentioned that uh, Bloomhouse has, I don't know, has optioned it or whatever. Is it actually in production? Is it slated to be a movie release and sometime soon? It is. Yeah. But with the recent uh, events with the SAG and WGA strike, um, I'm not sure <laughs> where it stands at this point, but 
I know it was up until then. Yeah, the reason I ask is um, I was very surprised reading it. Uh, there are lots of comic book projects out there that come with some holly with, with a celebrity name above the title. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah uh, of course. Yeah. The quality of those ranges a lot, as one might imagine. And I was very impressed with the quality of Mother Nature. So it did make me wonder what that adaptation process was like. Did you deviate from the script a lot? Have you adapted uh, other material like that in the past? Um, no, I haven't adapted anything uh, quite like that uh, in the past or really anything at all. I mean, you know, I, I mostly write all of my work. Um, but um yeah i mean they were they really like left me alone i mean like the like only i mean you know like there were notes here and there i mean like jamie would send me videos of um and she like continues to do of you know like violent ha um like hailstorms like out in the midwest and <laughs> you know um you know just like like little things like that and um i i knew that jamie was going to play the uh main antagonist so um you know i obviously based like Cynthia off of her. So, um, but yeah, other than that, it was really just up to me. So, I mean, you know, there was, it was like quite a challenge to, you know, a like adapt somebody else's writing and B to, you know, give it this cinematic look. But I mean, you know, like I've been looking at a lot of, um, you know, like European, like I've, I've been like rediscovering like my love for, you know, Mobius, and, like Droulet and Bernie Wrightson and, um you know the that like era of like heavy metal magazine um you know from like 77 to 83 and i was i was trying to pour like that like type of energy into it so that's an interesting collection of influences for this um it does strike me as being more fantastic uh maybe a little bit more genre like than most of the work i associate with you uh mm -hmm coming from like a European album influence makes a lot of sense. And we should say this work is, is line work, but also watercolor and you're doing full color. You're doing the color yourself. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you coloring? Are you painting directly on the original art? I am. Yeah. Yeah. It's all on the original art. Just one piece. <laughs> like there's no like overlays at all. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very much like a 19th century artist when it comes down to it. It's so scary for me as somebody who also makes comics to think about going into the originals, into the line art, uh, the hand lettering, and then adding color on top of that. It just feels like so much can go wrong in that scenario. Yeah. I mean, I've, I like had to redraw like a few <laughs> things, but you know, I mean, it's, it's fine. I've, I've, I've been, I've been at it for, you know, like, well, like professionally almost 20 years now. So, I mean, I've, I feel like I've gained some like confidence in that and you know i mean because it's it's paint i mean it's it's actually easier to you know like correct than than like one would think so have you experimented with any of the older um color comic techniques like blue line or gray line kind of art where for people watching at home who are unfamiliar in the 80s a lot of well some comics started being painted and the way they would do it is they would do a blue line method which is the line art was very, very lightly printed on a on an artboard, then colored or painted directly on that artboard, and then the line art was put on top of it with a transparent overlay for to photograph it and reproduce it. Uh, have you experimented with any of those kinds of processes? I haven't, um, and I would like to. 
because um, it seems interesting. I mean, that that video that you guys did on Corbin's color technique was a real eye, eye opener to me because I mean, he's someone obviously that was really like innovative in that. But I mean, I guess like my thinking has always been, well, it's, you know, it's like 2023 and like, you know, like color reproduction is like the is, you know, as as good as it's ever been. And, you know, and um, I've always looked at, I mean, you know, in addition to looking at like a lot of comics, you know, I, I study a lot of um, like uh, art history, you know, like fine art history. So, and, you know, like when you look at like the catalogs of, you know, like fine art catalogs or exhibition catalogs, you know, they're like reproducing paintings. So it's like, well, if they can do that, they can, you know, reproduce my like watercolor comics. <laughs> it's an exciting time to live for that, that, you know, that reason we talk about it a lot on cartoonist kayfabe, these different techniques, but also like the tools were so limited, you know, like I, I've been making comics like you for, you know, 20 years or so. And yeah. I think we probably both started kind of at the revolution of printing and international printing and, you know, digital file prep. And that allowed every tool to be used. You know, we could reproduce everything very, very well at a high, you know, the highest level. Yeah, yeah. And that just wasn't the case historically, right? We were we were no, bound no. by heavy black ink lines and somewhat limited color palettes. And to see that explode, like, you know, an artist like you, this is the perfect time for your art to really shine. I mean, I don't even know what it would look like if you had come along 40 years ago, maybe heavy metal magazine, like you mentioned. Yeah, that would probably be the closest to, or, you know, it would be like, you know, like Al Williamson's like secret agent comic strips, you know, they would just be completely like bled out and like the fine lines would just be like a little bit too thick and like muddy and horrible. Like I was just reading that, um, that, that old comics journal interview with him, I think from 83, it was like when he was doing like the star Wars, uh, like daily strip. And he was really, you know, he was just complaining about that, about how <laughs> the like, the like syndicates, like just did not give a fuck about, you know, like how it looked and, you know, so I, I probably would have been like bitching the same way about <laughs> how they just fucked up my cross hatching. Although like when I was a newspaper <laughs> comic strip uh, artist for like the Boston Phoenix, the like all weekly here in Boston, um, you know, I mean, I, I would draw the pages like eight by 10 or something, and then they would reproduce them uh, like four by six. And, you know, I was doing like the really, you know, like heavy, like, like cross hatching, like modeling at the time. And it just got, I mean, obviously got like completely lost and just looked like this weird, like, you know, dot matrix, like pattern <laughs> and like, <laughs> but, you know, I kind of thought that was cool, like in a punk rock kind of way. It's like, well, you know, I'm like doing all this drawing, but like nobody can see it. <laughs> this video is brought to you by the Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon. There are three different levels to suit all of your needs. At the King Kayfaber top level, you will get access to all of our videos first and earliest to help curb the Kayfabe effect. You'll be the first one in line to buy those books. And at the King Kayfaber level, you get to sit in on our recording sessions. So welcome to the Brain Trust. It is also brought to you by the books that we make. The books that you can get from me include Hulk Grand Design, The Plain Janes, and Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive. These are all available currently in print. My upcoming releases include Street Angel Princess of Poverty, which will collect all of the Street Angel comics not in Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive, and True Crime Funnies, my most recent self-published comic book. You can get this at my Patreon or at my website. Ed Piscor has a big year coming up, starting with the hip-hop family tree Omnibus coming out this fall. You can pre-order that and put your name on a copy now. It collects all the Hip Hop Family Tree comics in one handsome volume along with 140 extra pages. So reserve that one today. 
X-Men Grand Design. All three volumes of X-Men Grand Design will be collected in one trade paperback this fall. Again, pre-order that one today. Some of these Grand Designs have gone out of print, so this is a way for you to read X-Men Grand Design conveniently. And the third season of Red Room Crypto Killers is currently being published. You can get that at your local comic book shop. There are also two trade paperback volumes in print and available for order wherever you buy books and comics. And now back to our video. Did you change your style when you started to see that reproduced? Um, yeah, well, only after like about six months. And then I started like simplifying it and then like adding color too, because I realized that I could have color on that page. You know, I mean, they were, they were paying me like the $125 a week, <laughs> but then, so, I mean, but I could like do whatever I wanted. It, went through, it wasn't limited. So like, once I figured that out, then I started simplifying, but like, you know, I, I, I couldn't do like a simple line, you know, like I just have that like Raphamania, you know, that wouldn't allow me to do that. So I like had to add color, or, like some kind of wash. It's it's interesting to me that you work well in color, and also you are known for your uh, your line work, your pen and ink work, delicate cross hatching, the you know, million lines. Um, those two yeah. things seem so different, and yet you know, when I think of your work, it's probably almost equally divided between the two, between your painting and your line art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for sure, like these days. Um, you know, I mean, I guess like that, like that, like aesthetic was like developed like quite early. Um, you know, I mean, I guess like after art school, like I had like two semesters of art school and then I had to drop out. Um, like my parents weren't going to sign off on my financial aid. So it was kind of like on my own, <laughs> but like I did have, uh, this like great painting teacher who, you know, encouraged me to look at, um, you know, old master paintings and, you know, like go to museums and like really study and then like kind of have this revelation where I was like, well, you know, like there's like this hundred year history of like comics art, but like they all kind of like reflect on like other comic art, you know, like not like a lot of people are looking at, you know, like the canon of like, you know, Western, uh, you know, like drawing and painting, you know, but, you know, they're obviously like all these like different styles. I mean, you know, like, why can't I like take some of these techniques that, you know, I'm like learning from like, you know, looking at Rembrandt and like apply it to like comics. So, you know, really like the, that's where like all the hatching comes in from like studying, you know, like etchings and, um, you know, just like old master work. So it was really like, that's been like kind of my dominant aesthetic and then like working the color into it's like related to that as well, you know, just like studying painting and just thinking about color and like, you know, different terms than, you know, what's like traditionally used in in comics but you know that was completely like unpopular at the time and <laughs> you know i feel like it kind of like marginalized me in a lot of ways like in the early 2000s yeah that's interesting i i am not that familiar with your background so the fine art element comes in whenever you're like college age is that whenever that starts to be yeah. introduced to you yeah probably like 18 19. um Cause like up until then, I mean, you know, I was just all into comics. I mean, you know, since I was, you know, I mean, I'm like you and Ed, you know, like since I was, you know, like seven or eight, I just knew I wanted to be a cartoonist, you know? And then I had the good fortune of growing up in uh, like central Massachusetts. And, you know, as, as soon as I got my license or, you know, like friends of mine got theirs too, we would just go down to uh, like Northampton to, you know, go to the Words and Pictures Museum almost like every weekend. <laughs> And just like really got into like that scene, you know, and then also like the Boston scene at the time, because 
uh, Tom Devlin was working at the Millionaire Picnic, which is, you know, uh, my go-to comic book store up here. And, you know, and then like he had just started working, you know, or just started um, High Water Books and, you know, it was like publishing. So I like really like got this like rich, you know, kind of immersive um, education, you know, with just like all the local stuff going on. Yeah, that's a very rich local scene. I, I always think of Tom Devlin and High Water Books as being one of the things that kind of raises the bar and how comics look, especially how like book collections and graphic novels looked in oh, that yeah. 90s time period. Like there were a lot of ugly designs in comics <laughs> and uh, oh, High Water Book really, really changed that, uh, you know, with, with Tom Devlin. And I think Jordan Crane was probably, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in his ear as well. But production wise and design wise, I feel like that's a company that really uh, elevated comics. And then, you know, people started to catch up and, and I feel like comics look better now today than they have any other time I've been reading them. But I remember High Water Books as being one of those one of those markers along the way, at least one that I saw where it was like, oh, these books look different and kind of better than most of the other stuff I was seeing at that time period. You mentioned yeah. uh, the Words and Pictures Museum in Northampton. So this is Kevin Eastman's comic art museum. Uh, mm -hmm. I was never able to go there when it was open. My, my wife went to grad school um, and I visited Northampton when she was in grad school, but it was right after they had closed. It would have been like oh, really? early 2000s, I think. At least it was never open whenever I was there. I think it had closed permanently by that point, but it still had like the storefront. So I'd kind of like go and try to see in windows. What was that scene like? You mentioned a scene there. Was there uh, a pretty good local cartooning presence? And what kind of shows, like what was that museum experience like? Oh, it was incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, well, they would, ha they would have conventions too, like at the, at the Northampton Hotel. I mean, I've, I have like a vivid memory of one uh, where like Bernie Wrightson was there, like tabling, and um, like Peter Lyard was there. Like they were with uh, Jim Lawson. They had done the um, like the like Planet Racers. So I guess that was probably ninety seven, ninety eight. And uh, I can't remember like Tom Signowski, like who's like a writer, uh, but like a lot of, like the Turtle guys. Um, but uh, like Steve Murphy, who is the writer for uh, like Puma Blues mm -hmm. uh, was around and like he had started this um, alt weekly called the uh, VMAG or like the uh, Valley, like the Pioneer Valley magazine. And he like kind of took a shine to me. Like, I mean, I would, I would go to the comics shows and like, you know, sell my mini comics. And, you know, I was just, you know, like very bold and just like trying to meet all these guys. And, you know, Steve kind of took a shine to my work and like asked if I wanted to do um, like a monthly comic strip. So that was like really like my first gig was doing this. And it was just, you know, I made it, you know, it was quasi autobiographical. Like it, I also did like a Paul Pope parody that like a lot of people liked <laughs> at the time. I don't know, but it was, it was really dumb. I mean, you know, I was like 19 or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, but like, like the museum itself was incredible. Um, I, I remember going to like a, um, like the 20th anniversary of heavy metal there and they just had like a big signing uh like dave sim was there and uh like rick feach uh i think Pissette came down but you know like kevin was there and you know it was just you know like this like crazy party and like the like collection itself was um you know i mean it was like a who's who you know i mean just seeing those like kirby pages or actually the, the like rights in like frankenstein pages like there was like a spread of like the laboratory and it was the first time that 
like Wrightson became like human to me because like right in the dead center on like one of the beakers was like this giant caked like impasto of uh, whiteout <laughs> and it just it's like oh okay he uses whiteout too so that's awesome yeah and then like i remember like there's another signing with like the hernandez brothers and i was like so excited it was like a saturday afternoon and you know i like sped down there and when i got you know like expecting to be like long lines and when i got there there was like nobody there it was just you know gilbert and jaime and like um i think like gary was there and they were just hanging out so like i got them to you know like pose for all these funny photos of them like pretending to like you know to face like commandi pages and <laughs> that's amazing know. did yeah. you um you know you mentioned about starting at a young age wanting to make comics i i assume at that point it's spider-mans and batmans and, and kind of the stuff that i don't know ki kids comics i suppose at that time do you remember transitioning away from that like you mentioned your first comic being an auto bio comic for, uh, for mm -hmm. Steve Murphy, do you remember the stuff that steered you in, you know, away from say the, the work for higher model and into more autonomous, we've been calling them art, art, art artisanal <laughs> comics. Artisanal comics. Um, <laughs> do you remember yeah. the books that are the, what steered you in that direction? What, what exposed you to these, you know, comics are a lot more than just superheroes. Um, yeah. Well, I mean like the later ones was like, I mean, like Crumb, like my chemistry teacher in high school, like turned me on to Crumb, um, which he probably shouldn't have because I was like 15. Um, yeah, and coming like to Crumb from chemistry is uh, <laughs> definitely yeah. not something to, to give to teenagers, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was this old, like counterculture, you know, like boomer guy. And, right. you know, he's just way into that stuff. And, you know, he like, you know, I, I, I was always drawing and all my tests and everything. So he's like, oh, you know, like this guy would probably appreciate this. But actually, I mean, like, I kind of grew up more on like newspaper comic strips and also uh, Mad Magazine. Like, it, like, it wasn't until uh, I was in seventh or eighth grade that like I had this friend that like turned me on to like, uh, like superhero comics. I mean, I was kind of dimly aware, but like, you know, I didn't really get into superheroes until I was about like thirteen. And then, you know, at the time, it was like all the Image guys. I mean, I think you know, like, it was like right before like the split happened. So I was getting like McFarlane Spider-Mans and, you know, all that stuff. And like, that's when I kind of moved away from Mad Magazine. But, you know, I was, I was more into like, to that anyways, you know. So then like, by the time I got into Crumb, like a few years later when I was in high school, you know, like it, it just seemed like familiar to me. And then, you know, of course, like Crumb led to all like the 90s um, alternative comics. Um, like Peter Bagg was, was always my favorite, like still is um you know like i i love those issues of hate i mean i can reread those like you know anytime and always I've, I've probably read those issues at least like hundreds of times and they like always seem very fresh to me <laughs> your writing is is very funny and i i wonder if some of that comes from like a peter bag influence but visually it feels like you're so different than peter bag do you see oh, any yeah. of his visual influence in your work um like a little bit i mean like on, on like mother nature i mean some of the action scenes you know i definitely think of peter you know with his like exaggerated poses i mean you know even though he's not he doesn't really do action comics but you know like his his work is very like kinetic so um i guess like you know i take something from it but it's it's mostly just like the writing i mean like his writing is so like naturalistic and and, and funny and just like interesting you know i mean i've there are like very few comics that like like that entertain me like like his comics. 
or crumbs for that matter too you know i mean it can pick up any of those you know like crumb comics i mean i, I feel like his golden period is the like 80s like the like weirdo era up until like hop and you know um but like you know any of those stories are just you know like they just really hold up for me you know did um, you did you oh, drift yeah. away from comics at all like in the late 90s early 2000s i feel like that's the very low point for comics and I, I wonder if that was if there was ever like a near escape for carl stevens from the uh you know from the pool of comics no in fact i was like digging in because i mean like that's really like all i wanted to do i mean I, I just had this like fever like possession that like you know like i i didn't even care like what the marketing was it's like you know i mean i was, I was poor anyways you know i was you know working you know this dumb like working class job as a security guard at an art museum and you know um so it was like well you know i, I didn't really expect to make a living off of it you know but like i did you know, just want to do it. I mean, it just was this like, you know, vision. I mean, it was, it was probably really stupid. You know, I should have, <laughs> you know, figured out, you know, a way to go back to school and become like a graphic designer or something. So, so you're working, uh, you know, working a day job and you're making comics on your own, you know, in the evenings and the weekends, whenever you have time. Is that kind of what's happening there in the early yeah, days? Yeah, at first, but then, uh, well, I was working at the Harvard Art Museums and um, I had like charmed my way, like, you know, outside of the galleries because I mean, I was a, you know, I was like a museum guard and they like gave me a desk job like at the staff entrance. So I would just sit there at the staff entrance and, you know, I mean, it was a good job for like, you know, like a lot of like students had that job. So, when, you know, and they would work on their uh, homework when they're there. So it was like, well, if they can work on their homework, why can't I draw my comics? So I just ended up doing that. So like, I just, you know, had this 30 hour a week job, you know, like full benefits. And I would just sit there and, you know, like draw my comics. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, like I, I, I drew like all of, all of my like, you know, early like comics for the Boston Phoenix there at that desk. And actually also like all of Guilty as a matter of fact. <laughs> when are you doing Guilty versus um, whenever you start doing work on, for the Boston Phoenix? Well, Guilty came first and like that got me the gig at the Boston Phoenix. So I was working on that probably from 2003 to 2004. Um, and then um, when I published it with the Zurich grant, um, the uh, Phoenix did a review of it. And then it was like around the time when they were like redesigning the paper and they weren't uh, like running comics up to that point. Well, they're they running like David Cypress the um, New Yorker cartoonists, they're running his uh, reject comics like every week. Um, but anyways, like when they did the redesign, they they asked if I would be interested in doing a weekly comic because uh, Guilty took place in Alston, which is like the big, you know, like student ghetto of Boston where like a lot of BC and BCU students live. And, you know, it's so like they, they, they wanted like a strip that was about, you know, people in their 20s, you know, like just like living in the city it was like a really vague idea um but they offered it you know they, they like offered me to come up with something and i did and you know they were they were very patient with me <laughs> i mean i don't think i really hit my stride until maybe like three or four years into it but you know i was going through like a lot of other like personal issues too i mean i was dealing with you know like alcoholism and all that so um you know i have like a lot of bittersweet 
uh, views of that period. Was that your primary output in terms of comics, the weekly strip? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for like a while. I mean, up until uh, like it ended, you know, from like 2005 to 2012, I was pretty much only doing the the weekly strip. And, you know, I mean, it's with like a lot of regret that I say that because, you know, I feel like that was like the prime of my youth. And, you know, I just, you know, I squandered like a lot of my time that I shouldn't. I mean, you know, yes, I was doing like a weekly strip that was, you know, very complicated and demanding, but, you know, I should have been spending 60 hours of my career <laughs> instead of the 20. I feel like we can all look back on our lives and say that, you know, like, I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, I know, it, I know. It, it's, it's a pretty it's good stupid. record to have created. Um, you know, we hear from so many people about that, that want to make comics and they struggle with time or whatever. And I always think like, if you did one page a week, like a Sunday strip, you know, like, like, like your alt weekly, like a weekly. Yeah. yeah. That it would add up, you know, and it would add up quickly. And, you know, you look at your body of work and your first several books come out of that, that kind of model. Um, you know, I think Chris yeah. Ware kind of worked out of that model for quite a while whenever he was doing, um, you know, his strips in new city, was it whatever the Chicago paper was, it's the Chicago reader. I think, yeah. Right? yeah. Um, so, you know, like, I think there's a model there that is not widely talked about. We always, you know, if you're coming out of superhero comics, I feel like the model we grew up with was a page a day, but <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know that you look at those old superhero comics necessarily and go, Oh yeah, look at the quality that comes out of that page a day <laughs> model, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I know. I think that's true that weekly is, is pretty interesting. And I mean, like, did you, did you try to syndicate that strip like with other alt weekly papers or anything? Was that part of your plan? No, I didn't. And like, that's part of the regret is that I like, you know, should have, um, I remember talking to Keith Knight at the time and like, he had this, this whole like system about, you know, like sending photocopies to like, you know, other newspapers and like getting it syndicated. And, you know, I mean, I always meant to, but I was just like a dumb kid and like couldn't get my shit together to, to do it. Um, I, I mean, like there was a stipulation with the Phoenix that, um, I mean, I, I could do that, but because they were paying me more than what they would normally pay for like a syndicated strip, like they, they would have to publish like the new one first, but then like other papers would have to be like a week behind or something. So I don't know, but yeah, I've, I probably should have tried to, but you know, I, I feel like at the time, like it kind of had like a tag too, that I was just, you know, it was like a Boston like centric. I mean, although like I thought that, you know, there wasn't really anything that particularly Boston in the strips themselves, you know, I thought they were, you know, like more broad than that. They were just about young people like drinking too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That seems pretty universal. <laughs> yeah. Not even sure that's limited to the U S <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. But I don't know. Like I had like a weird like hang up about that, that it was, you know, people just thought it was too Boston and I, I couldn't understand why. So you gotta live somewhere. Yeah, really. Um, and I feel like Boston has a pretty big imprint uh, pop culturally throughout our world, you know, throughout America. So I don't know that that would be a, holding anything back. You know, I'm trying to think of like Goodwill hunting time period. And, you know, you might have been able to ride that wave as well of like, everybody loves yeah. Boston. Check it out. <laughs> I guess. Although, I mean, like that part of Boston, I find really like ugly and dumb, like dated. I mean, like there's so much more to the city than, you know, the like Wahlberg, like meatheads. And, 
all that, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's such like a, like a relic from the past, you know, um, and I was just trying to do something different, but yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying, although like now I've, I've been like writing this, um, like New England, like Gothic horror story. I'm like leaning into the genre more. So like, I, you know, if I can get this next book off the ground, it's, it's going to be my ultimate statement about Boston, <laughs> but, <laughs> and it's a horror book. Oh so, yeah. It's perfect. Very, very violent. So. <laughs> um, let's talk about your process a little bit. Uh, how do you write your comics? Uh, well, these days, um, I've, I've been writing with, uh, well, like this horror story that I'm working on, I'm like writing with uh, a friend of mine, um, who is a writer and has been known as like a film critic. His name's Jake Mulligan. Um, and I brought him in because he's really good at structure and like understands story, which I feel like was always kind of like my weak point. Um, but I mean, I feel like I'm good at dialogue and like, you know, coming up with like an overall like idea structure. But, you know, as far as like the nitty gritty of like, you know, what scene needs to go where, I feel like I needed to bring somebody in. But, you know, but it's evolved. Like we've been working together for the past couple months and it's it's really, you know, be, you know, in this organic way, become more of a like give and take. So, you know, he, so he's coming, you know, he like usually comes over like, you know, for about six hours, like during the day. And we just keep like regular work hours, just, you know, like just hammer out the script. So, um, I mean, that's how I'm writing like these days. Whereas, you know, before it was like the same as everyone else. I just you know, kind of sit alone, you know, in my apartment and just stare at the blank piece of paper. <laughs> do you keep a, do you keep a journal or a um, sketchbook that you yeah, you know, yeah. record ideas as your mm -hmm. as they come? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have like two or three sketchbooks that are always going. Was that pressure having a weekly deadline? Yeah. Yeah. It was horrible. Um, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it was really like, you know, just trying to come up with something. I mean, and then like later with like the New Yorker cartoons, um, you know, just submitting like five to 10 of those every week, you know, was, was even more pressure, you know? Um, and um, yeah, I mean, but I, I feel like by then I, you know, fine tune like that skill of like, you know, meeting deadlines, like a lot, you know, I mean, it was, it was, um, it was, it was like a lot easier than it was like in the Phoenix days. So. What kind of feedback were you getting from an audience, if any? From, from like the Phoenix? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, oh, like, like crazy feedback. I mean, people would like recognize me on the street, which was really strange. Like, you know, they would like shout out at cars, you know, like this, like this happened at least like three or four times. Like, you know, I'd just be walking down the street and someone would like scream out, Hey, I love your comic strip, Carl. Hey. <laughs> and then like, like on the subway once and, and, you know, like people would like write in, I mean, people were like really engaged. I mean, you know, like the Phoenix had a pretty big circulation. I mean, I think it was like 300,000 papers. Cause I mean, it was, you know, it was in the city, but then, you know, in Cambridge and Somerville too. And, but, you know, I mean, like Boston's like probably the biggest college town and on the planet. So you know, they had like a lot of people like reading it. And, you know, it was like right before the like internet, I mean, like the internet like destroyed it because, you know, like all all weeklies, um, you know, they just 
they kind of served the purpose to be like, you know, listings for what was going on around town. So, you know, once the internet came around, it's like, you didn't really need all weeklies for that. So, well, there's like a larger history of all weeklies going away. And, you know, most of it is like, you know, corporate, you know, like hedge fund guys buying it, you know, and like not knowing what to do with it and then selling it. <laughs> the reason, uh, the, the reason I'm curious about that is your, your journey in comics is different than most of the artists that I talk to, you know, so many, especially on cartoonist kayfabe, it tends to be like a comic book kind of avenue. Um, yeah. You know, and I think as we get into younger audiences, now you have web cartoonists and, you know, more ways that people become cartoonists or build their audience. But I haven't talked to very many people that have done it, uh, you know, with original work in an alt weekly, uh, essentially a newspaper cartoonist. And especially something like of that scale, like I think about my early stuff and I'm doing mini comics and like black and white indie books that are, you know, selling a thousand copies or something yeah. to have 300,000, you know, a circulation of 300,000 for your comics for several years there when you're starting out. I mean, were, were you conscious of that? Were you sort of going like, I wanted to make comics and here I am. Look at, you know, how well this is going. Or was it like oh. different than what you, you know, it's like this isn't comic books. So, you know you tell me, you know, what, what's that like? <laughs> well, it was a little bit of both. And I mean, I guess that's why it's like bittersweet because, you know, it's like, yes, it's like, you know, like I have like this large audience and it's like exciting and, you know, they're continuing to like print like, you know, these, these weird comics that I've been making, but then, you know, like I would go to Mocha or something and then, you know, like all my peers, you know, are like, you know, doing comics and like they're getting published by like Fanographics and like drawn a quarterly and, you know, just being published by them just like kind of gives them like a leg up like within like that scene. And, you know, like I always feel like I was kind of like, I mean, I guess like left out or like, you know, kind of overlooked, you know, because like I wasn't, you know, like like my work wasn't published by like, you know, certain publishers. So, you know, there was like a, I, I felt like a real bitterness when I was in my 20s, like because of that. Um, but, you know, I mean, I like got over it. So, I mean, it was it was like one hand, like, you know, I was happy to be published by, you know, like a paper that, you know, like paid me, you know, like like a weekly rate, even though it was a pittance, but also had that circulation. But, you know, like the larger world of comics, like, you know, I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. So it just kind of, you know, it created this weird, like dichotomy in my brain that, you know, uh, made me feel like an outsider, even though I was, you know, being published, you know, <laughs> in this, you know, sort of like mainstream avenue. <laughs> Do you feel like you made changes um, in your approach to making comics in order to steer your career in a different direction? Um, no, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've always just kind of done what I've wanted to do in like a lot of ways. Um, like when I started doing Penny, like in the village voice, um, I guess that's the first time where I really like thought about that, you know, like doing something that was more like popular. Um, and like, that was an accident too. I mean, that was like through Tom Spurgeon. Like I just got an email randomly in like 2016 or something saying that like, you know, he had been tasked with being like an agent for the village voice to like find like, you know, all weekly cartoonists. Cause you know, the, the voice was going to start publishing cartoonists again. And uh, there were like um, two positions, you know, and um, they like paid like a thousand dollars a page. <laughs> and he asked if I would be interested. And I was like, yeah, of fucking course I would be. So, um, so I like, you know, pitched them like an idea 
and I like, went down there and like, you know, met with them. But like the idea was kind of like, you know, almost similar to what I was doing with the Phoenix. It was just about young people living in Brooklyn. And like, you know, I like lived in New York for a couple of years and, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, they like weren't really that into it. I mean, kind of, I mean, but they were like throwing out like ideas to me, like, oh, you know, like we like wanted to be like the heart of Juliet Jones, you know, but like now. <laughs> you know? So like, I don't even know what that it, would mean now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. So I, I had no idea. So I, I try to come up with what they thought that meant. And, but anyways, but, you know, they were rejecting it. And then they they said, you know, uh, give us something that um, that's like has more mainstream or, you know, they, they even said, you know, something that like that I'm like women would read. I was like, so I, I like turned to my wife. I was like, what would women read? <laughs> and she's like, uh, just do something about the cat. <laughs> so, so like, that's how Penny got started, but it was, it was like a really strange meeting, but you know, um, like they really liked Penny. So, um, and then, you know, I just got into that. Cause I mean, you know, that was like a genre that I'd, I'd always kind of been interested in. Like I'd done like a few animal strips for like the Phoenix and I like really enjoyed it. So, um, so this is Penny for, uh, everybody playing at home. If you're not familiar with this, it's a beautiful collection that Chronicle put out full color and absolutely stunning art really shows off Carl's artwork a lot. Um, you know, you mentioned that it's an animal strip and obviously Penny is the star, but I feel like the, um, I don't know, Penny's monologues, <laughs> uh, narration, if you will, uh, it's definitely more than, than, a, than an animal comic. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a cat fan as people that watch this channel know. So I've read a lot of cat comics and they range from being very natural in terms of following an animal around to, you know, whatever the most cartoony alternative of that is, you know, and I think Bill Blackbeard may have published or co-authored a book on like cat comics, you know, like history of cat comics kind of stuff. So it's certainly a rich history in terms of comics, um, but it feels like there are the autobiographical elements, not just of you being the cat owner, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in the book, but also kind of the the inner monologue of Penny, if you will. You know, there's a certain existential uh, dread or something that, that fills these monologues, and uh, it feels very autobio in that way as well. Uh, a lot of, oh. you know, just wondering about the world in general. Um, I don't know that I have a question to come out of that, but but it is a very uh, interesting way, I think, to approach autobiography or memoir while mm -hmm. like grafting it on top of a character like Penny, who, you know, we're not actually seeing Penny's thoughts. We're kind of getting your worldview there. Yeah, I mean, well, like like any bad parent, you know, I'm like trying to like imprint like my own like toxic personality, you know, <laughs> on my uh you know, um, uh, cat children. I like really hate it when people say that. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, that's, I mean, you're, you're completely right. I mean, like, that's where it comes from. You know, I mean, I would just write down all my, you know, um, sophomoric, like dumb thoughts and like, you know, like turn it like, you know, and then like, say like, you know, like how would like Penny say this, you know, like I would start with like something that I was like feeling that day and then, you know, try to, you know, um, like tart it up and like make it more, uh, you know, like funny and like, you know, like dark and, but yeah, I mean, like, it, like really all comes from, you know, like my own, um, you know, angst, like, like that day. So, and, you know, I mean, it just, it just seemed like a, 
like you know like a fun way because i mean if like it had been me saying the things that penny was saying it would it would just be completely insufferable you know like somehow making it like a cat just makes it easier <laughs> yeah there's a real um i you know i went through my alt 90s comics fandom and it seemed like we all read yummy fur and then wanted yeah. to do auto bio comics Absolutely. and you're exactly yeah. right it's that it's what we call the navel gazing right where yeah. and especially for you know a 20 something white guy it's just kind of like i don't who the fuck I, cares right exactly <laughs> like i've read it five thousand times and it's yeah. so fresh whenever you graft it onto a cat and it kind of i don't know it's an interesting way to sort of recontextualize these ideas that probably we all have and we all deal with going through life but somehow putting them onto a cat character almost gives them a different a fresh coat, you know, a different point of view, a different worldview. Um, one of the strips that stands out to me is Penny escaping. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, my cats love love running for an open door. Uh, oh, really? They're, they're yeah. indoor cats all the time. Like, it's not like, you know, we've kidnapped them from some great outdoor life, but yeah. they often will end up running for that open door. And so I could identify with Penny escaping. You know, it's almost like an impulse that these creatures <laughs> have, like whatever the wildness inside of them is. And, yeah. you know, it's it's not a great experience in this story. What Penny experiences whenever she gets out into the wide world, uh, it smells bad. There's threats of violence. It's hard to find <laughs> yeah. food. You know, it's not a great it's not great whenever she's out there and you eventually find her, you and your wife and bring her home safely. And she reluctantly has to admit, well, you know, here I am back back in prison, but I guess it's the good <laughs> right. life, you know, sitting on the blankets <laughs> and it's warm and there's food and everything. And it feels so much like oh yeah, this is, this is us, you know, modern man speaking here. Uh, oh yeah. Longing yeah. for something that we don't actually want, but you know, romanticizing right. it along the way. That's right. The grass is always greener. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Penny has, has done well. I, I feel like um, you are working on a sequel, which you've announced, yeah. right? I'm not, I'm not. Well, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been working on it. Um, well, I've, you know, I've, I have about, I have like a lot of it done. Um, but I mean, there's an interesting thing with Penny. Um, so like initially it didn't sell that well for like Chronicle standards. Uh, but then, um, I met, uh, David Sedaris, like at a, at a signing. Um, cause I'm like, my wife is a big fan and like, we went to go see, I mean, you know, I am too, you know, I've like read his essays, but I mean, Alex is like a huge fan. So we like went to go see him and then we waited in line. And because I can't stop fucking networking when we got to the line, I mean, I was just going to let her talk to him, you know, cause, and, but, you know, he was distracted and then, or like time was running out, but like, since I can't stop, you know, networking, I was like, Oh, David, you know, like I'm in the New Yorker too. He's like, Oh really? It's like, Oh, you know, it's like, I'm going to write your name down. So, you know, like we like chatted and then, you know, he like, you know, wrote something nice in our book, but like, you know, Alex didn't get to talk to him at all. And, you know, afterwards, I was just, you know, so apologetic. I'm like, I'm sorry, like, I don't know how, but I'm going to make this up to you. And she's like, yeah, right. Okay, whatever. You know, I'm over it. But then like the next day, I get a DM on Instagram from David Sedaris. And he's like, um, I didn't realize you were the same guy that wrote and drew Penny. Um, I bought that at this, um, at this bookstore when I was in Provincetown last year. And like, I loved it. You know, it was, it was like my favorite book of the year. And I was like, oh, that's that's fantastic. So um, I sent him an original because like I'd realized there was a panel of um, Alex like reading one of his books in, in Penny. So like I sent him that page and, you know, he was like really grateful. He wrote me this, 
you know, um, like nice little postcard, you know, where he compared Penny to uh, Madame Bovary. He said like she was one of the great like literary figures. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, oh, you know, great. You know, like David Sedaris fan. And then, you know, like three months later, he emails me and says, you know, every time I go out on a book tour, I always, you know, bring along somebody else's book. And for my fall 22 tour, I want to bring Penny. So it's like, oh my, you know, like this is like, this, this is like the chance of a lifetime. You know, this like major American author wants to take, you know, my book on tour with him. So I tell Chronicle, you know, they're excited. And they said, you know, David said he could probably sell between 50 and 100 per stop. And he was doing 47 stops. And so Chronicle's like, yeah, yeah, you know, like we have enough in, in stock. But it turns out they didn't. Um, they only had, you know, like 600. And like they only really printed up 6,000, <laughs> which was crazy to me. Um, but anyways, long story short, they didn't like reprint in time. So like once David started doing his tour, you know, he was selling like 100 copies like per stop. And it just kept getting higher and higher. So they did like a small reprint and then like that sold out. So um so like all those shops were just like sold out, like for the tour, like they only had like about a hundred, you know, like 200 copies and they would just sell out within the first hour and his signings go for like eight hours. Cause he would like literally get up there and like hold Penny and say that, you know, like, like anyone who like has a cat or like has a friend with a cat, you know, will like want to buy this book. It's, you know, like genius. And like, you know, saying all this shit for like 15 minutes <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, like, like really like selling it, you know, so like people like and it was like around, you know, like the holidays, too. So um, I like met up with them in like Seattle and Portland, only like, the last two stops. And like the Seattle shop had 175 copies of, of Penny and like they sold out within like a half hour or something, you know. So I was just like sitting next to David, you know, as he's signing for eight hours and then, you know, people like apologizing how they, you know, couldn't get copies. <laughs> so it was a whole fucking thing so like you know like it could have it should have told like 10 times more than it did you know so so then anyways so you man know, i feel like, like this is one of those this this is such a cartoonist story you know like yeah. you, you the stars finally align and the yeah. product is not available yeah yeah exactly and i mean yeah it, it got like worse too because then but like after the you know like after the tour you know like david you know like we had breakfast together and he was like saying you know like whatever you do next you know i'm gonna talk to my editor at, at little brown you know whether it's the penny sequel or like whatever you want to do and you know we'll like you know get them to publish it because it's really like horrible what like chronicle did so um so you know i like did that because like i had like the penny sequel already to pitch because i'd pitched it to chronicle um earlier and like they had rejected it because like the sales you know like pre sedaris like the sales weren't what they were expecting so um so we pitched it to little brown but then uh like wasn't quite for them <laughs> and but then like um i guess like the editor had moved to chronicle and then like my agent was like well do you want to you know like we're like not going back to chronicle because the way they treated you before i was like well you know but they're like different editors because like my editor on penny had had left like i'm not sure why so but like you know she was gone so then I thought, well, maybe it's like a clean slate. And we can go to them again. So we like pitched it again and like they still rejected it. So anyway, so like now, um, you know, I just have it and I'm just kind of like working on it and I'm just like weighing my options about, you know, whether or not to do it. Um, I mean, like the sequel is, 
you know, like has like another cat. Like Penny realizes that she has a sister who's been there the whole time named Pepper. Um, and it just kind of goes on from there. And, you know, it gets it's like a lot more uh, fantastical. Like they go to the like land where all the cats come from. And, you know, it has like sort of this very surreal quality to it. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's why they rejected it. I'm not sure. But regardless, like I am. Um, I just started a Patreon where I'm like serializing it. So, you know, like fans of Penny can uh, join my Patreon for $5 a month and um, I'll be posting them every Monday Are along you... with outtakes. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask if it's still set up as like a weekly kind of, I don't know, yeah. page concept. Um, yeah. Again, it feels like a different way to work, but obviously a way that you have been working mostly your entire career. So yeah, I mean, that's definitely what I'm used to. And, you know, I mean, I, I have like at least 50 pages, you know, so I have like a year's worth. Um, so like whatever happens in the next year, I'll either like continue that pace or I'll, you know, uh, like ramp it up. Then maybe have like one or two pages per week. Because um, like when I was working on Penny, I was doing about three pages a week. So. Yeah, it feels like um, with the current... I don't know, social media tools that are available to us. Um, I think of them as distribution tools in a lot of ways. That idea of doing a weekly strip, a daily strip, some sort of strip kind of delivery rather than a uh, comic book or even like graphic novel, it just makes so much sense now because of how long it takes to generate 100 or 200 pages of material. Why not find a way to put that in front of readers, you know, once a week or a couple of times a week or something? Um, you know, it yeah. seems like a no brainer and it seems like a lot of, more and more people are doing it that way, but it, 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 it's taken a long time to become, I don't know, a more popular method of using the tools that we have right now. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's strange that it has, I mean, yeah, it like makes sense to me to like kind of dole it out like that, but I guess it just depends on the stories too. I mean, like something like Penny, which is, you know, mostly just standalone like strips, you know, I think it makes sense like for that, for like that kind of model. You know, I wish, um, you know, like some, I, I'm like, I like Summer Pierre is doing that too. She's like a comics friend that I talk to a lot. Like she's been serializing this um, story about her mother, um, you know, who was like a roadie or like started this like roadie business and ended up working with the Rolling Stones and had like this crazy like life. But like she's been like, you know, serializing that whole story on uh, her Patreon. And it's, it's yeah, it's like a, incredible you know but you know but like that story isn't you know like like standalone you know one page strips it's you know like a like a long narrative so but she's you know it, it still like makes sense so do you have a um like a peer group of other cartoonists that you meet with or share work with to get feedback um yeah i mean sort of i mean uh I, I like talk on the phone a lot um i talk to Kyler Roberts a lot on the phone. You know, we were talking on the phone like once a week for a while. Uh, I talked to Summer on the phone. Um, a couple of the New Yorker cartoonists, uh, like Sarin Lee. Um, and, you know, but like local people, there's uh, Joel Christian Gill, who um, just did a book with um, Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, he adapted uh, Stamped into a graphic novel, but um, he's the uh, Boston University started this uh, graphic novel program and like he's the chair and uh paul karasik uh, is like another teacher there so i've you know gone and like visited them and like hung out 
Um, and like Dave Ortega is another cartoonist that's that's local. And uh, like Raul the Third, he's a like YA cartoonist, but he's in Somerville, and you know we like see each other. I mean, there's there's a uh, Mice now, which is the Massachusetts Independent Comics Expo. It was in Cambridge for a long time. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done it every year. I mean, I think it started in like 2009 or something. But like, you know, that's our big uh, SBX style show. And it's just gotten bigger and bigger. But like now that BU has that program, it's it's at BU um, in like one of the art galleries. So it's like, you know, like this big open space. And, you know, there were these giant windows too, which is always nice at a convention. Like I remember like, <laughs> I remember like loving. It's so true. You know. Natural light is such a welcome addition to comic conventions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get, get so depressing, like in those caverns. I mean, I have like fond memories of like the puck building and, you know, like when like Mocha was there uh, in New York and just like, just having those windows. Or I mean, I have memories of windows. I mean, like, do you remember that? Yes. The windows there. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I felt that was a big part of it. It was a beautiful space. <laughs> yeah. Is excellent. Yeah, I ask about it. Um, it. It seems like comics have really exploded, um, probably since we started making them. Like I say, that late '90s, early 2000s feels like a low point in comics to me in terms of circulation and, and maybe readership. And yeah. since then, it just feels like it's exploded. So I'm always curious when I talk to cartoonists from different areas, like you know what that scene is like. And it sounds like Boston has a has a pretty active scene. Um, I also yeah. think like just having some peers around is a uh, is a plus, whether it's to get feedback or just to know that you're not like, you know, the Alone. weirdo sitting. Right, exactly. <laughs> sitting in your studio all day with your back to the world. Um, it can be a very disconnected existence if you're, you know, if you don't take measures to avoid that kind of disconnect. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I've, I've, you know, I've, I always kind of had like, like a, little side gig. I mean, I, I went back to being a museum guard, like in 2013, like after I stopped drinking and really hit rock bottom and like, you know, it was broke. Um, so I like had that and like, I, I kept that for like seven years, like, you know, I, I quit like after the pandemic, but I mean, at least that was, that like got me out of the house, you know, and, you know, I was able to like just socialize with, you know, people. Um, but, you know, it was the same thing, too, as like Harvard, you know, I like charmed my way into getting a desk job and was able to, you know, draw my comics. I mean, I did most of Penny and like the winner and, you know, parts of Mother Nature on it, like while I was working there. <laughs> That's really interesting. But, I yeah. always uh, always joke with uh, various cartoonist friends, too, like whenever you have that job, um, mm -hmm. you know, security guard, something along those lines where you're at a desk, but you have some free time. Like you're the yeah. professional cartoonist, right? You're getting an hourly wage and sitting there drawing comics. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like you know, and they even. I mean, it was a small museum. It was the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum, which is you know famous for uh, their heist, ironically. Yes. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, but you know, I mean, like I, I you know, got to be friends with like all the curators and everyone there. So I was kind of like the house. I was the house artist, and like they even hired me to do some work for one of their shows um so they like have this like botticelli painting that's a triptych that tells the story of lucretia in like three panels and the way they would always describe it would be that you know it was like a 16th century graphic novel so the curator thought it would be you know interesting to pair up a modern cartoonist um you know to like have them you know do like a you know like 21st century version of like uh the stories that like Botticelli did in that style because like they had like other triptychs too that they brought in from Italy 
so yeah they like hired me to like do that <clears throat> and they made uh, like reproductions of the drawings that i made um you know i did the story of lucretia the was one of like the story of virginia but then the like main one was like this 12 panel comic that was uh, like the history of how Isabella Stewart Gardner uh, acquired the Botticelli and it was in 12 panels and it was like right as you walked into the gallery and they like blew them up I mean you know I, I drew them the size that I always draw them which was probably five by five or something and then you know they blew them up to like 20 by 20 and had them on the wall so it was you know pretty interesting to see like all my line work you know like blown up like that you know it's like an artist edition times 20 but uh, there's actually like an interesting anecdote with that too. <laughs> um, and uh, so they like invited me to like the gala, like that year, like their big like fundraising gala. And they asked, and okay, I was still working as a guard. And, you know, they asked if um, I wanted to put up the original drawings for auction for the, you know, for like the trustees. And so I was like, yeah, of course. And um, like, I like had a gallery here at the time that would like sell my work, but um, it was kind of like at the end of that, cause like this gallery like screwed over a lot of the other artists and like weren't paying them. So uh, long story short, I didn't really have anyone to uh, ask what I should charge. So, you know, they were like, well, you can either take a percentage of what, um, you know, it'll be auctioned for, or, you know, we can just give you like, we'll just buy them like flat out. So I like did the math. It's like, well, 12 pages, you know, I'd probably sell them for like, you know, at the time, like a thousand dollars a page. So, you know, $2,000 because I figured like no one was going to bid on my, my work. And I didn't think to like ask what they were going to start the auction at. So, you know, I'm working there and like the day before the gala, I like see, you know, one of the women from development, you know, laying out all the auction cards and it says original Carl Stevens inks, ink drawings, starting bid $25,000. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, all, already that's like 10%, you know, and like, you know, the way that like the gallery system works, it's like, you know, half, like you take half. So Alex and I go to the gala that night and, you know, they're like announcing the, you know, the, the like bidding for the auction and, you know, like all the other things. And then the auction closes and then like the head of development comes running up to me. She's like, oh my God, oh my God, Carl, I can't believe how much your drawings went for. I was like, how much? She's like, oh, I shouldn't say. I was like, just, just tell me. She's like, $200,000. <laughs> wow. I was like, if I had taken, like, yes. if I had said to the head of finance, like, you know, usually the split is, is half. Like I would have had like a hundred grand. And then, you know, of course I'm just like this like, you know, pet artist. And then like the next day I'm like back at the security desk, like checking IDs, you know. <laughs> that feels like almost a graphic novel's worth of, <laughs> of angst added to your uh, to your character. I know, I know man. Yeah, it, it was a lesson, you know, always seek advice. That is a very you know? good lesson. I, I was curious what the lesson was gonna be and that is a good one. That is one I the think we is, all could benefit if from. If, if you're dealing with rich people, <laughs> like they're like not, you know, just, some asshole at the convention wanting to buy your original for $200. Wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's pivot a tiny bit. Um, the New Yorker, you've been drawing, you've been drawing comics for the New Yorker for several years now. How mm -hmm. does that come about? And how does that 
connect to your overall art practice? Cause that feels like a different type of writing and even drawing in some ways. Oh yeah. Completely alien to me. Um, so that came about because of, uh, Emma Allen, who is the cartooning editor there. Uh, she just happened to be in a bookstore in, uh, Brooklyn and like saw a copy of the winner, uh, bought it and like read it, like really liked it and just like reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in submitting. And it was, you know, very loose. She's, you know, she just broke it down. She's like, well, there's two modes, you know, there's the like online, you could do strips, you know, and like it pays like X amount or, you know, you could submit gags to the magazine. And like, you know, like we require you to submit between five and 10 every week, you know, and you know, that pays X. So I was like, well, this is a golden fucking opportunity. You know, it's like, you know, I've been reading the New Yorker since I was, you know, a late teen and, you know, love the magazine and like the rich history and all the rest. So, um, so I just, you know, started submitting. I just, you know, started like trying my hand at it and she was really like sweet, uh, in the beginning and like, you know, just, uh, would like give me feedback about like what I should change and, um, and, you know, just kind of pointing me into, uh, just like getting that like rhythm, right. Cause it was like a certain type of, you know, gag that like they buy and it's, you know, it's, it's very like elusive to me. I mean, you know, people like Roz, Chast and, you know, like Liana, you know, like seem to have this like sixth sense for it, you know, but it's, 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 you know, very difficult for like me. Do you ever talk um, to them about that sixth sense? Like, do they have a clear in their head? Do they have a clear understanding or, or, you know, something they're aiming for? Cause it um, does feel like that elusive quality is something I've heard other New Yorker cartoonists or, or people who are submitting to the New Yorker. I've heard other people describe it that way. Yeah, I mean, I haven't talked to Roz or Liana about it, but I mean, I've, I've talked to Paul Karasik about it and like Serene Lee about it. And, you know, really it's, yeah, it's, you know, we're just, it's it's like anything else. You just got to sit there and just like let your mind wander, you know, and then just just keep submitting. I mean, you know, they're always, I mean, you know, I do this too, like submit, you know, like rejects and I've, I've gotten a couple of them, you know, in. So, you know, it, it's really just, I mean, it's, it sounds so abstract, but it's just like trying to like get into that, you know, type of um, humor. I mean, you know, like I find if I just, if like I read a stack of New Yorkers, like cartoons, like, you know, like my brain starts to get into that rhythm and then like, I find it like easier to like come up with gags. But, um, and you know, of course, like the more that you do it, I mean, when I was doing it every week, like I, I did, I was submitting every week for like a few years up until mother nature started that I just couldn't say the workload was way too much. Um, you know, they were, they were coming like a lot easier and I was probably selling one out of every six submissions, which I'm told is good, but you know, it's, it's crazy. Like just like the amount of work that goes into it. But, you know, on the flip side, it's, you know, I mean, that's what led to mother nature. I mean, like had I not been in the New Yorker, you know, Jamie wouldn't have, you know, seen it. And then, you know, like this would have never happened. And same with like David too, you know, like, you know, just having that like connection to the New Yorker, you know, like, like really helps. So, I mean, it's, I, I, I mean, like these days I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I haven't been submitting as much as I have. I'm still like kind of coming down from like finishing mother nature, but, um, I have been submitting covers and, you know, I've, you know, like fingers crossed on like one of them. So it feels like the next logical step. In, in yeah. Life. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I've, I've, I've really just been, I mean, I've, I've been looking at, um, like Norman Rockwell a lot recently because there was this great drawing show that was at the Norman Rockwell Museum this this past mm -hmm. autumn and it just it just has really gotten me thinking about 
um, like telling stories through like a single image, you know, and I, I've also just been wanting to get back into oil painting again. So I figured, you know, why not? Like, you know, why not try to try to do that in addition to the comics work? Well, that, that brings us to another piece. Um, I'm interested sort of in, I don't know, I guess personal health, but I'm always curious, like how artists and freelancers balance work and life. And, and I wonder what your schedule, like what's a week look like? You know, you seem to have quite a few different directions that you work in. How mm -hmm. much do you schedule that? How much, you know, do you have a rigid schedule? Like what's your, what's your week look like? I do. And at this point, my wife will be rolling her eyes because she hates it when I talk about our routine. But it's like a pretty like it's it's really rigid. So like we get up at like five in the morning and we we like both run five miles. Then we um, we do transcendental meditation. We've been doing that for almost 10 years now. So, uh, well, we like do that first. We like meditate 20 minutes, then we'll run, we'll come back and you know get ready for the day and then um she works at uh cambridge health alliance she's a, a social worker like she works with kids so like she'll go to her horribly stressful job you know at 7 30 and then um i'll just start work you know and i do schedule it out like week to week um now that i'm like writing this uh new book um you know like jake will come over at 10 but but from 7 30 to 10 i'll um, like lately I've been working on, you know, like whatever it is that, um, I have burning. So like, you know, now it's like one of the, it's like a New Yorker cover that I'm working on and then stuff for the penny Patreon. Um, and then Jake will come over at 10 and then like, we'll like write till four or five and then I'll make dinner, you know, spend time with Alex. And then, you know, that's just my day. I mean, like when I was working on mother nature, you know, it the same thing in the morning and then you know, I, you know, just work on mother nature from seven thirty till like, you know, a break around it's like noon or one. And then I would just, you know, take a walk. I mean, like we live in like downtown Boston, like by the water. So, you know, like the, like Boston commons, like a 15 minute walk. So I would like, you know, walk down to the common or just like walk around the Harbor and just, you know, read or, you know, go to the millionaire picnic, you know, just something just like, you know, kill an hour or two and then, come back and like do some more work and make dinner. And then if I didn't hit like the marks that I needed to hit that day, I would, you know, work into the evening. And I mean, it, it was really hard on Alex. I mean, I always try to keep weekends free, you know, just so we have time to spend with each other. Um, but yeah, there were definitely periods when I was working on mother nature where, I would, you know, I was working like on the weekend and I just, you know, felt bad about that. I mean, you know, I really believe that I need to, you know, have, you know, non-drawing time. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I, you know, but like, I do feel like I have that like natural inclination that like, if I didn't have Alex, you know, I would just be this weird, like shut in, you know, like I, I would, you know, work probably just all day and, you know, maybe like leave the house once, but I would just become like a hermit, you know, and like work through the weekends, which is bad. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's good that I'm exercising and meditating and all that crap. <laughs> Have you always been into running? Really um, no. Um, I mean, I did like in high school, um, like my father was uh, really into sports and I have two brothers and they were better at sports. Uh, but, you know, he like encouraged us to, you know, uh, at least do like track. And so like I, I, I did track when I was 
in in high school but then you know as soon as i like moved out i just did not exercise again until i was like 32 until like i met alex <laughs> so but you know it's but you know i i really swear by it i mean i, I feel like it, it like saved my life like in like a lot of ways i mean it was definitely good like after i like quit drinking you know like gave me something else to be addicted to <laughs> and you know just kind of kept me like you know on schedule and I, I feel like i have less aches and pains because of it you know like a lot of my friends who are the same age like have a lot of back pain and I've, I've been lucky thus far and i don't know i mean people tell me it's because of the exercise so are you still running no i'm in the worst shape of my life <laughs> <laughs> really I, I should be running, uh, but no, I'm not, not, not in any regularity at the moment, unfortunately, but I'm with yeah. you on the exercise thing. I do think that it's really imperative for cartoonists to develop good habits because like you say, these pains do come up and, you know, anything you can do to combat that is going to, I think, improve your ability to make art. You know, if you're yeah. in pain, it's, it's not the optimum way to be creating anything. So yeah, no way. <clears throat> Yeah, I feel like uh, exercise, nutrition, all of these things we should have, I don't know, bigger conversations about in regards to people who want to dedicate their life to sitting in a chair and drawing <laughs> like <laughs> this will help you sit in that chair longer. So, yeah, I think yeah, there's a lot we could be doing there. Yeah, it's true. I know. I mean, I always feel like an asshole like when I'm talking about it, you know, but I guess I shouldn't I should stop being a self-conscious cartoonist and just be an advocate. <laughs> Yeah, I, I used to go, uh, I used to do more with schools, um, like, uh, you know, CCS and places like that, like going and doing like visiting artist talks and things. And I, I would always like mention that because like, whenever you're 20, you can eat whatever you want, you can, oh, yeah, you know, do, you, you can have the worst habits in the world. But uh, those years go by quickly. And you know, if you don't, if you don't change them, um, it certainly I assume shortens your, your prime. So yeah. Um, I also think it's good for mental health too. You know, like I used to always say like running for me was definitely more mental health than, than, I mean, it was probably physical benefit too, but it was definitely the mental side of it. I just felt better whenever I was running regularly. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, like, you know, I, I you know, like if like, I don't, I mean like we, we have a skip day cause like we're not that masochistic, but like on that skip day is always like my worst day for like drawing. Cause my like head is just kind of like in a cloud, you know, like I'm not as like sharp as I normally am, but you know, so I just drink more coffee, but I mean, I also think like the TM like really helped too. I mean, you know, I'm a big advocate of like doing transcendental meditation. I mean, that, that like really like, you know, helped like my focus and to, you know, and also it just gives you kind of more energy, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost like, um, uh, you know, like plugging yourself into the wall, you know, like it just, you know, you're, you know, as like a, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a 20 minute like nap in like a lot of ways, but it's, but like, it really just like recharges you. And like, you know, I've, I've been sleeping better ever since then. And, you know, just being like more aware of like, like everything, you know, like I, I really think like the meditation helped. Is that something that Alex introduced you to, or were you interested in that on, uh, before her or did you bring it to the relationship? Uh, no, we like both went at the same time. Uh, it was my friend, uh, Jamie O'Brien, um he started doing it first and you know he was like a friend from like childhood and uh we were both howard stern fans and you know we've just been hearing about it like since you know we were kids listening to stern 
and you know like david lynch and all that so it was just kind of like in the air and like you know jamie started doing it first and then he was you know really pushing us on it um but you know it, it does cost money to learn like you have to go to a teacher and you know i mean it's it's not that much but uh, I was always resistant because of that. But then, you know, I like did this job and it's like, well, okay, it's like now or never. And like, I just gotten sober too. So it was, it just seemed like a good time to do it. Um, so yeah, so like we both did it at the same time and, you know, yeah, it's, it's just been great. I mean, it's, it's, it's really um, something. I mean, you know, I've gotten like a lot of um, ideas for, you know, gags and stuff like while meditating and, I don't know. But I mean, like mostly it's just for like the deep, like rest, you know, really you just, um, you know, just kind of go into this like trance state and like, you know, like your brain just kind of like sleeps. It's, it's, it's like really something. All right. I, I, that's almost everything I have, but I did want to double back and talk about your drawing and kind of something in your art that, that stands out to me. So, you know, for people watching this, um, you're a very detailed, your art is very detailed, it's very natural. Are you using photographs? Are you using models? Like, how, how are you building some of these images? Yeah, both. I mean, you know, I was always taught to use, uh, like, references to look at and draw. Um, you know, I've always found it strange that, like, comic artists, like, kind of, like, feel bad about that, or, like, there's, like, a stigma. But, I mean, I've always thought that, you know, drawing like wasn't a contest to see who has the best memory. You know, it's like, you know, you just need to use whatever you need to like make a good drawing. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, I, I use tons of photographs. I mean, for like Mother Nature, like I think I had like per page, like 30 or 40 different references, you know, just trying to get everything right. Um, but, you know, but I'll like build models um uh or you know like whatever is available i mean you know i i do draw to my imagination but i don't know like I, I would always get so bored like like when i was younger like i would try to draw things more cartoony and i would just get really bored i was more interested in like you know trying to draw something like more realistic or something more natural i mean especially with the stories that i was doing because you know they were about you know they're semi-autobiographical or were autobiographical so like why wouldn't i want to you know, use the imagery from my life, you know, and I just thought it would have more resonance. And then, you know, to put like jokes, like coming out of, you know, realistically drawn people, like just seemed like that hadn't really been explored, you know, because <laughs> like, you know, most realistically drawn stories, you know, they're all like either genre or, you know, they're like serious, you know, so, I mean, that was kind of like the dominant aesthetic, but um, but yeah, I mean, like I always draw from observation. I mean, even like with the photographs, you know, I'll just like have it on my desk and like look at it. It's like literally like for reference, but. Well, here's the matter. other, uh, the part two of that question is there's, you know, we have been critical and I don't mean the two of us or me and Ed, but just in general, I feel like a lot of the, the comics fandom has been critical whenever things are overly referenced. Um, you know, there've been artists who seem like they are tracing photographs in some cases and stuff. Your comics have a certain quality of, of realism, but they're also very, they're, they don't feel stiff or static, you know, um, which is hard. It's very elusive. Do you have any, uh, any tips, anything that you think about uh, pro part of your process that allows you to work in a way that 
looks realistic, but is also there's still a lot of life in your drawings. Um, I think it just comes from like not tracing. I mean, you know, I'll just look at the reference, but also I, I draw a lot from life. You know, I mean, I'm always sketching, you know, like when I'm on the train or, you know, like anywhere, um, you know, I'm, I'm like looking at, you know, I like continue to study art history, you know, like I'll go to museums and like, you know, just look at different types of drawing and like different techniques, you know? So, I mean, I, I feel like that, you know, just keeps my brain thinking, you know, like about like visual things, like in a, in like a different way, you know, it's so like, it's not just trying to copy the like distortions of the photograph. It's more just trying to make like a good drawing. And like the photograph is there to like, you know, just give you details that, you know, again, like your memory just can't conjure. I mean, like, you know, drawing like isn't a contest, you know, to like see who has the best memory, you know, it's like drawing is, you just want to make a good drawing, you know? I mean, like, if you look at, you know, even like Michelangelo, you know, it's like, oh, like Michelangelo's realism, but like, he's not, you know, I mean, it's like, when you look at those drawings, it's like, you know, you might as well be looking at, you know, like a, like a Liam Sharp Hulk or something, <laughs> you know, it's just that, that like, you know, detail of, I mean, like, if you like think about it like that way, it's like, you know, here's someone who's, you know, drawing like all the muscles and like this like hatched, like beautiful way. It's like, you know, why not study like Michelangelo for that, you know, and like, you know, you'll like learn something like from the technique and like, you know, it just won't be, it just won't be so limited. I mean, I, I feel like artists who draw in a realistic style that, you know, trace photos are just like limiting themselves to like only looking at, you know, like, I, I don't know what, but like, they're not looking at art, you know, and like you can see it. So I feel like just having like a bigger, like visual vocabulary will, you know, like stop that stiffness. That's a really great insight. It's it's amazing that that's not something I've heard from every single artist. You know, whenever I've read an interview <laughs> uh, with any comic book artist, I feel like that would be good advice, and it never comes up. That idea of like, you know, study art history, go go to a museum and 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 study these yeah. artists as opposed I mean, if, to just magazines yeah. and comics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's like a rich history. I mean, like the whole fucking twentieth century was about exaggeration. You know, it's like there's. The German expressionist. I mean, like if you draw in a cartoony style, like look at fucking Otto Dix or like you know Max Beckmann, you know, or like you know Ernst like Kirchner. I mean, it's like this like rich, rich history of like European and like American like art. You know, I mean, in Japanese art, I mean, it's just you know, it's just like right there, and like there's just so much like that like you can learn from that can like translate over. I mean, just because it's not you know panel to panel and like you know it's published by like Marvel or DC or something, you know, doesn't mean it should not be studied you know and like on the flip side too i mean you know even if you're doing like art comics i mean it would seem like a natural thing to like just be looking at you know art <laughs> anyway, yeah it, maybe, it definitely maybe seems not. obvious but uh yeah. like i say it's not something that i've heard talked about very much by comic book professionals so glad to hear you bring it up here um Carl, this has been great. I'm, I'm excited to catch up with you finally. I feel like I've been reading your work for a long time, so this has been awesome. Is there anything that we haven't covered that we should have gotten to? Um, no. Well, I mean, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> um, Did you want to go down that 90s rabbit hole and start talking <laughs> early image favorites? I mean, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Todd McFarlane. I mean, I'm going to San Diego this year, and he's going to be there. And I'm like more scared of like meeting him than I am of like anyone else, just because 
he just looms so large like within like my like adolescent like psyche you know i mean i like bought that 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 spider-man artist edition and like one of the spawn vaults editions and you know even though i feel like my style is like moved way beyond that it's just you know i still get that like thrill of like looking at it you know and like i just want to like capture that in a bottle i mean especially for this like next project that i'm doing which is like you know it's a full-on like horror comic and you know i just i don't know there's just something about it um but yeah i mean you know i i mean he was the favorite but you know of course jim lee and like liefeld and yeah. It's been interesting with doing cartoonist kayfabe going back through like the wizard magazines, because I mm -hmm. think, you know, I always remember like Jim Lee X-Men, 8 million copies and, you know, Rob Liefeld X-Force, 5 million copies. And in yeah. my head, I always remember them as being these massive sellers, but going right. through like image first, you know, three or four years, I think we've covered McFarlane is like outsells everybody, you know, like yeah. he is so number one in terms of like commercial success you know, outside of the gimmick covers, which inflate the numbers. And I right. feel like history, because he kind of moves away from comics and, and does other stuff. I don't know if history remembers that or not, but man, the first half of the nineties, it was like, he was the number one guy and then oh, everybody yeah. else was number two and below. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't a tie at the top. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. I also think it's interesting that you cite McFarlane based on, I don't know what your pen tools are for drawing, but I, I know like McFarlane's pretty famously talked about the Hunt 102 as being like his, uh, you know, his, his pen for inking a lot. And it looks like that's what you're holding up right now. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to look at, at you two as being Hunt 102 masters. And yet your art is so different between the two of you. Yeah. Ah, I got interested in other things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But it's still, uh, it's still interesting to think like you guys have that commonality in terms of tools. Uh, oh yeah i mean as soon as i found out like what what he was using to get those lines you know i like begged uh my mother to like you know take me to the art supply store and i like bought one you know and i like didn't look back you know so i mean that was like 1991 or something you know so i've been using a hump 102 <laughs> like every day for the past 32 years wow it's fucking crazy that's awesome i mean <laughs> So, I mean, you know, I've, I've like tried to use other pen nibs. Oh, actually, like Guilty was drawn with a Hunt 107, but everything else has been a Hunt 102 or a brush. I mean, I've, I've been doing more brush inking. Um, like the more that I've, you know, looked at like Williamson again and like Alex Raymond, um, you know, uh, just trying to, you know, step on my brush game. But um, at like some point, um, I would like to do a, book that's like fully painted you know i mean like that was like the other thing from the 90s too like uh when like alex ross came on the scene you know that was like a big deal for me and um i always wanted to do like an alex ross comic that you know was like also like an indie comic you know that was just like a i mean indie meaning you know like a like a story just about people you know like a non like superhero like realistic comic and um so you know like something like fully painted i mean i guess i've like kind of done that with the books but i mean i don't know i have a vision of something that's just like all color and like painted like that that you know i don't know i, don't, I mean I've, I've experimented but it is it is hard to get away like 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 the closer that you get to like the photography the like harder it is so i don't know i mean i would like to find that balance someday to like to be able to make like just a, like a fully painted comic that 
you know, doesn't like look stiff or, you know, weird, but I don't know, maybe I won't get to it. <laughs> yeah. And you, you don't consider mother nature or penny that way because there is some line art. The line. Yeah. Although, I mean, I guess it is, it is like the closest I've come. I mean, I guess I just want to get rid of the line someday, but like how that looks, I just, I just haven't decided yet. So I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm like being vague about it. <laughs> it's the future of, of, of the art that you make, like who's, you know, who's to say what that's <laughs> yeah. going to be. It makes me think yeah. of somebody like a Drew Friedman though, that comes from mm -hmm. a very, you know, tight pen and ink style and has kind of moved away from that to fully painted work. So there's definitely some yeah. models out there for you to look at in terms of yeah. other people that have gone that direction. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it just depends on the story. I mean, I am I am really into like genre right now. And, you know, I've been talking about Jake with with, with Jake, my co-writer about doing like, you know, like another genre book after this one. And I don't know, like I've if I could plot out the next 10 years, I think I would like to do that. Like at least do like, you know, three to five books that were all of a genre type. So um, so this like fully painted, you know, graphic novel like love story might have to wait <laughs> bring back the romance comics yeah i mean I, I i have been working on a romance comic that i like really want to do um that i mean i've you know i i've been like fully written but um you know it would it would be like 300 pages and i don't know i mean it's just i mean like like money is such like a weird point right now like you know as i'm getting like more success it's still like you know i need to like sell something that's you know more like commercial and i feel like I, I can't quite take that step yet so unless i go back to the museum but i've gotten so used to just not working that i don't want to do that anymore yeah i think you ruin yourself for employment at some at some <laughs> point i don't know when that is but I, I can't imagine going back to a nine to five i think i yeah. would be very bad at that um this yeah point in my life but yeah same it's really sad scary <laughs> scary i don't know if that's sad right it means you've been uh, living <laughs> off of comics so it's kind of kind of great on one hand yeah i know but like just to not be able to yeah i know you're right it's it's good i guess i say sad because you just just becoming like unemployable just seems <laughs> like like scary somehow it's just like you know just kind of floating like, you know, by the seat of your pants, you know, I don't know. It's definitely a weird existence. Yeah. It's not, um, I often think that with friends that aren't in comics, it's just mm -hmm. like what I do is so different than what they do, you know, in terms of not having a boss or not having a place that you're punching into and out of and yeah, it's different, but it is, it is different. Yeah. And it's like hard, I think for people to like really understand it, you know, um, yeah, I guess that's why you just got to hang around artists all the time. Yeah, that's right. That's the solution. <laughs> well, Carl, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and for the comics that you make. Uh, where should people go to follow you on social media or to find your upcoming books? Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Carl Stevens Art. That's K-A-R-L-S-T-E-V-E-N-S-A-R-T. Uh, and I also have a Patreon where I'm serializing the sequel to Penny uh, called Pepper. Um, and that's Patreon slash Penny Comics 666. Um, and yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, like Mother Nature is coming out August 8th 
from Titan Comics and will be debuting it at San Diego Comic-Con this year, uh, which is Friday, actually. And it'll be my first time going to San Diego and to go with an A-list uh, celebrity actor <laughs> should be something. I have no idea what to expect. So yeah, I think that show is going to be strange this year, maybe, but uh, it, is, it probably yeah. makes it makes it better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, um, like Russell, like texted me, Russell Goldman, the co-writer of Mother Nature said that, um, you know, it was his fault that like, uh, the like strike happened. So like now we're like the biggest panel at, at San Diego. Cause like all the other, like, you know, Hollywood people have like pulled out. So, and, you know, luckily since this is just a graphic novel, it's, it's okay for Jamie and Russell to promote it. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, you know what? I say that, that this is going to be a strange one, but like, I think every Comic-Con might be strange. <laughs> Yeah. So you'll be in good company, I'm sure, no matter what. And maybe it'll be more focused on comics this year. People often complain about that. So uh, I hope you have a great time there. I hope you run into Todd McFarlane and it goes yeah, smoothly. And everybody, uh, follow Carl Stevens at his social media. And uh, Carl, have a great day. You too. Thanks, Jim. Thank you.